Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and today we're going to talk about cults. I've always been fascinated by cults. In the seventh grade, I found a great introduction to cults in the library, and I read it cover to cover twice. I was a weird kid, but that is probably not a surprise. Anyway, the most unnerving thing about it to me was the lack of clear difference between cults and mainstream religion. Looking at their structure, practices, and brainwashing techniques, I recognized a lot of them from the church I grew up in. It was around this time that I stopped going. I hadn't lost my faith, but what I had gained was a deep mistrust of organized religion and the power-hungry people who are often at the center of it. This is probably why they're trying to stop kids from reading, or restricting them to age-appropriate books. We wouldn't want them thinking, would we? <laughs> 25 years after I read that book, I'm still fascinated by cults, and that thin line between religion and cult seems to be getting thinner all the time. When does a cult become a religion? I asked Sean Ingham this question in our Madame Blavatsky episode, and their answer was, about 30 years. If a cult survives the death of its leader and continues into the next generation, you have a religion on your hands. 30 years. I want you to keep that in mind as I tell you today's story. This week, we are talking about 19th century preacher John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida community, a polyamorous utopian society in upstate New York based on the ideals of communism, birth control, and free love. No, we're not going back to the 1960s. We're going back to the 1860s, and shit is going to get weird. This week, we're talking religion, cults, birth control, silverware, and the spectacular messiness of what might be history's biggest polycule. A word of warning before we start. As funny as some of this is, parts of it get really dark. Massive content warnings for sexual abuse and incest, and anybody with religious trauma or experience in cults or similar environments might find parts of this extremely triggering. So be aware and proceed with caution, or we'll catch up with you next time. With that out of the way, let's talk about silverware. If you walk into your kitchen right now and have a look at your silverware, there's a decent chance you'll see the word Oneida stamped on the back. I first noticed it at my grandparents' house around the same time I was reading that book on cults. They had two or three full sets, gifts from their wedding in 1949. By the 1940s, Oneida was one of the most popular silverware brands in the world, thanks to decades of aggressive marketing targeting young women picking out china patterns for their weddings. Like that china, Oneida had different flatware patterns to choose from, each representing a different aesthetic in the way that ladies' magazines used to sell lipstick. Are you a flirty spring or a glamorous winter? Will your kitchen be stocked with Louisiana or Chateau? My grandpa was a gardener and my grandma loved flowers. Their pattern was Wordsworth, covered in little roses like the ones that grew up the side of the house. But that silverware has an interesting history. Long before the silverware company started, Oneida was a communist utopian community, an offshoot Christian sect that practiced polyamory through what they called complex marriage. Of the 300 or so adults that lived there at its height, everyone was considered married to everybody else. Like many cults, it all started with one man who couldn't get laid. Let's start at the beginning. John Humphrey Noyes was born on September 3, 1811, in Brattleboro, Vermont. He was the fourth of nine children, and his family was rich. His mother was deeply religious, and his father was a Dartmouth-educated businessman who served in Congress from 1815 to 1817. Noyce was a studious and thoughtful child, and like his father, he eventually went to college at Dartmouth. 
There, he struggled with severe social anxiety. Surrounded by beautiful women in the community, he felt like a kid in a candy store, but he didn't have the slightest idea how to talk to any of them. He was deeply self-conscious about his height, red hair, and freckles, and he was convinced that women found him physically repulsive, preferring instead the other Dartmouth chads over six feet tall with square jaws and fancy horses. Okay, I'm editorializing there a little bit, uh, but you get where I'm going with this. He projected his self-hatred onto women, imagining that they felt scorn whenever they looked at him, especially if he happened to do anything even mildly embarrassing in public. It tortured him, and he would obsess over minor social blunders, despairing over his luck with women until he resolved to remain celibate, telling himself that it was his choice to renounce the physical world for more intellectual pursuits, although he still desperately wanted to get laid. In case it's not clear, this guy was definitely an incel. Incels today talk a lot about the redistribution of sexual resources, like women can just be assigned as sexual partners with no space for preference or personal agency. And ultimately, that's what Noyce did. In his capacity as leader of the Oneida community in years to come, he would engineer a situation where he was surrounded by dozens of women who couldn't say no. Marriage wasn't an obstacle, and the threat of pregnancy wasn't a reason to refuse. Under Noy's teachings, the power of Christ compelled these women to fuck him whether they wanted to or not. This guy was not only a proto-incel, but he might have been their king. Noyce turned a corner on his path from sexual frustration to cult leader in 1831, when he attended a religious revival to appease his mother. 1831 was a major year for religious revivals in the Northeast, part of a larger movement that became known as the Second Great Awakening. As Ellen Wayland Smith explains in her book Oneida, this revival, quote, emphasized humans as active moral agents capable of steering their souls and the fallen world around them toward the perfection promised by the advent of God's kingdom on earth. Instead of waiting passively for the millennium to come, humans had a duty to reform their world and thereby hasten Jesus' arrival. Now, they don't mean millennium, as in the year 2000. They're not counting down to Y2K. This is millenarianism, a belief that the second coming of Christ is near and that it's up to his followers to create a perfect society to bring about the end of the world through the rapture, when the chosen ones are taken to heaven and to hell with everybody else. Literally. If you don't know anything about millenarianism, I strongly encourage you to look it up. Once you understand the concept, you'll see it everywhere, and it explains an awful lot about where America is right now. But less about people trying to speed up the apocalypse, and back to John Humphrey Noyce. The revival was a welcome distraction from his sexual frustration, and it provided a surprising outlet. At these revivals, it wasn't uncommon for people to experience passionate outbursts of emotion, like a valve releasing all their pent-up frustration, rage, lust, and longing. People who were otherwise reserved and buttoned up acted wildly out of character, and because it was in a religious setting, it was socially acceptable. Perhaps the Holy Spirit had moved them to do so. This divine rapture they experienced was often described in sexual terms, and likewise, it was noted that there was a major increase in sexual activity among attendees after the service. Noise was into it. He noted that connection between spiritual and physical ecstasy, and it would inform the philosophy that drove the rest of his life. Later that year, he entered seminary to begin his life as a preacher. There, he became passionate about abolition, working with a local Black community to help found the New Haven Anti-Slavery Society, 
So far, so good. But no matter how hard he studied, he was still preoccupied with sex, and the idea that he was sinful tortured him. Why were people inherently sinful? What if it was a big misunderstanding and they just weren't? The desire to escape the concept of original sin led noise to perfectionism. Perfectionism is the idea that as God's creation, humans are perfect, warts and all. That actions don't matter so much as the acceptance of God's grace. This sounds a lot like what many people believe today, but different groups throughout history took it a bit far. Take, for example, the 13th century Brethren of the Free Spirit, a sexually promiscuous Christian sect that believed their members were immortal supermen, human embodiments of the Holy Spirit who were incapable of sin and beyond the law. This went about as well as you'd imagine. They were hunted down and burned at the stake. Because, of course. Then, in the 17th century, there were the ranters, known for drinking, whoring, and cursing. They thought the concept of sin was bullshit. If God created us this way and God was perfect, calling anything he created sinful was blasphemy. So let's get another round and praise God for good ale. Amen. Noyes combined the ideas he liked from millenarianism and perfectionism to create a new theory that would change his life and piss a lot of people off in the process. He decided that the second coming of Christ had already happened, and that people had misinterpreted the book of Revelations. Instead of counting down to the rapture, they were supposed to live it on earth, creating a utopian society and sharing their bodies and resources with each other as he imagined the saints in heaven did. He basically imagined heaven as a giant divine orgy that he wanted to recreate in the present. Sin wasn't a problem anymore, because sin no longer existed. As you can imagine, Divinity School loved this. Just kidding. They kicked him out. They not only removed his right to preach when he explained this philosophy, but they had him escorted off the premises immediately. But this didn't stop Noyce from preaching. His friends and colleagues fell away, but as the dust settled, he found his first follower. Her name was Abigail. Abigail Merwin was so receptive to his ideas that she had a spiritual breakthrough that she described as a near-death experience, so overwhelmed with ecstasy that she thought she would pass on to the other side. She was his first convert, and her confidence in him spurred noise down the path that would eventually lead to Oneida. In 1834, not long after meeting Abigail, Noyes moved to a tenement on Leonard Street in the notorious Five Points neighborhood in Manhattan. It wasn't like anything he'd ever experienced before. Surrounded by crime, violence, poverty, and sexual temptation, he threw himself into his devotion, experiencing something like a psychotic break, complete with erotic dreams about the Holy Spirit. He describes these in detail in his diary, writing that he experienced a sex hangover the morning after, considering himself married to Christ. Despite the divine fuckfest, he saw Satan's minions everywhere. He stopped eating and sleeping, preaching to anybody passing in his manic state, until he became convinced that he was the devil himself. This continued for three weeks, until his visions finally stopped. He returned home to his family, confident that in resisting the spiritual warfare in the Five Points, he had thwarted the devil and passed a spiritual test. He was ready to preach. Unfortunately, everybody back home thought he'd lost his mind. Abigail, his only follower, had moved on, and she was engaged to a Mr. Merritt Platt. Noise didn't take this news very well. Yes, he had let her on for a while and then disappeared to New York for some time, but he was better now, and she belonged to him which must have been news to Abigail. Some other churches that Noyes was in contact with at this time believed in the theory of spiritual marriage. The preachers behind this had observed that many marriages were thankless, unsatisfying, and overly focused on property. 
They found that even people who had been married for years still often searched for their soulmates, and sometimes they found them outside of their marriage. Spiritual marriage was the idea that even if you were married to someone you detested in life, you were always spiritually married to your soulmate, and you would reunite with them after death to bang it out in heaven. It's a nice consolation, but why you wouldn't just leave an unhappy relationship to bang it out in life, I don't know. It seems to me that staying in a bad relationship would be a greater sin and a disservice to everyone involved, but what do I know? I'm just a heathen with a microphone. But anyway, Noyes hadn't thought much of this idea until it applied to Abigail. He wrote to her that it didn't matter if she was getting married to someone else because she was spiritually married to Noyes. She would always belong to Noyes, and they would eventually be together after death, whether she was into it or not. We don't know how Abigail responded to this, but I think you'll agree she dodged a bullet. She went ahead and married Mr. Platt in 1836, and they moved to Ithaca. Noyes followed them. He wrote to his family that he went to confront Abigail, who, in his words, had deserted her post as his helper. Unfortunately, restraining orders wouldn't be a thing for another 130 years. Poor Abigail. But the stupid thing about this is that when they first came in contact, Abigail was probably in love with him, and he didn't do anything about it. He fucked off to New York without any notice, had a psychotic break, and decided that she was a demon. That actually happened, by the way. He eventually got over the whole demon thing, then moved across the state to shame her for not waiting for him even longer, even though he'd never given her the slightest bit of encouragement. He'd ignored her until she left him, only realizing he wanted her when she wasn't an option anymore. Idiot. I wish I could say that he'd learned something from this experience. Instead of learning to take women's feelings into consideration, he decided that their feelings simply didn't matter, and that he didn't have to respect their wishes if they contradicted his own. This experience with Abigail was fundamental to the theology of Oneida. In the grand tradition of narcissists using religion to get what they want, he changed his philosophy to do away with marriage altogether. It wasn't that he was truly polyamorous, he just didn't want marriage to be a barrier to getting the woman he wanted. In 1837, he wrote to a friend, Exclusiveness, jealousy, and quarreling have no place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. She is yours, she is Christ's, and in him she is the bride of all saints. She is now in the hands of a stranger, and according to my promise to her I rejoice. My claim upon her cuts directly across the marriage covenant of this world, and God knows the end. As Wayland Smith explains, Frustrated by jealousy over having to share Abigail with an earthly husband, Noyes had to invent a system in which exclusiveness was banned and all were wed to all. This system would form the central philosophy of the Oneida community. Despite Noyes' obsession with Abigail, he married Harriet Holton in 1838. Harriet was another follower of his and a true believer. She'd have to be to stick it out for the next 30 or so years. Harriet was also rich, and her support, both emotionally and financially, would help Noyes to get his community up and running. By 1841, Noyes had enough money to start. Between investments and an inheritance from his father, he had $38,000, or the equivalent of about a million dollars today. Two of his earliest followers were George and Mary Cragen, a married couple who would influence the structure of the Oneida community in ways they couldn't have predicted at the time. It all started when George fell in love with Noyes' wife, Harriet, confessing his feelings to her in a letter. Harriet felt the same about George. Noyes called a meeting of the involved parties, him and Harriet, George and Mary, 
where Harriet and George admitted in front of their spouses that they were in love with each other. To their surprise, Noyes and Mary were in love with each other, too. Noyes had been attracted to Mary since their first meeting, and, like Abigail, he thought of her as a spiritual wife or a secret soulmate, who he would eventually have sex with in heaven. But suddenly, Noyes had a revelation. Why wait? If love could be unselfish, why not sex? They were creating heaven on earth, after all. In fact, God wanted him to bang Mary. God would be disappointed with him if he didn't. The message was clear. A miracle. Just a quick aside here. There is nothing wrong with polyamory, and what happens between consenting adults is nobody's business. I'm being critical here because I don't have a lot of patience for people using God to justify doing whatever they wanted to do anyway. Using religion to control others is reprehensible, especially because many of these self-proclaimed men of God take advantage of people's faith without truly believing in it themselves. But this wouldn't be the first time Noise used so-called revelation and his direct line to God to control other people's love lives. In fact, he'd make a habit of it right up until his death. But George, Mary, and Harriet didn't mind at the time. They declared themselves spiritually married to each other and entered into a kind of long-term wife swap. This was the community's first complex marriage, but it wouldn't be the last. Before long, more couples were added to the marriage, including Noyes' own sisters, their husbands, and another couple. That's right, Noyes' own sisters were now also his wives through complex marriage. We don't know if Noyes ever slept with his sisters, but through his writing, we know that he didn't have a problem with incest. As Wayland Smith explains, he saw it as a way to purify and promote group unity among God's elect. Gross. Around this time, Noyes conveniently refined his theory of Bible secretiveness, especially as it applied to complex marriage, meaning that no one outside of the relationship knew what was going on. The town didn't know. Even his friends and most of his family didn't know. God wanted it that way, he said. It would be a sin to tell anybody. And this, as too many people unfortunately know firsthand, is part of how abuse within religious communities goes unreported for so long. Abusers use their positions of spiritual authority to coerce, gaslight, shame, and isolate their victims, so they're less likely to ever come forward. And there was plenty of reason not to admit to complex marriage at this time. As nobody recognized it outside of Noyes' community, those who participated would have been fully shunned by society as adulterers and worse. Adultery was a crime at the time, and Noyes himself was actually indicted for it in 1847. Following this indictment, Noyes moved his community one more time, and Oneida was born. From the beginning, sex was at the center of it. I mentioned that the Oneida community saw themselves as communist, but their idea of communism didn't stop at sharing property. You had no claim over property, your spouse, and ultimately yourself, and these beliefs compelled you to share your body with the community. As Wayland Smith explains, quote, only complex marriage, the open and equal sexual union of all community women with all community men, could approach the holy unity enjoyed by the saints in heaven. The ideal of non-procreative sex among multiple partners was touted by the Bible communists as a religious sacrament of the highest order. Sex was a sacrament, but it was also a way to achieve immortality. Like so much of the world at the time, Noise was fascinated by electricity, equating it with a kind of life force that he believed came directly from Jesus. 
People could share this electricity through touch, like static electricity shocks you in the winter, but the best way to share and strengthen this electricity was through sex, which he saw as the most effective way to commune with God. He believed that if you had enough sex, sharing increasing this electricity over and over and over again, you would become one with Jesus, who was a kind of holy battery at the center of the universe, and that heightened life force would enable you to literally live forever. Forget diet and exercise. All you need for eternal life is a daily megadose of vitamin D. <sighs> Sorry. Unsurprisingly, a lot of people were into this idea. As the community got going, supporting itself through various types of industry like manufacturing silk thread and hunting traps, more and more people wanted to join. And on paper, it sounded great. Let's look at the pros and cons. Okay, so first, there's the polyamory thing. Free sexual access to dozens and eventually hundreds of others without guilt or taboo is pretty appealing to a lot of people. If sex outside of marriage is a sin, it's totally chill because you're married to all of them. And Noise is a perfectionist, so sin doesn't exist. Awesome, you're off the hook. You live together in a giant mansion where all of your meals are prepared for you, resources are shared so you don't have to worry about bills or going without, and you're given time outside of work to pursue your own hobbies and interests, assuming you have any energy left after all the sex you're having. And it was particularly attractive to women. Unlike the outside world, women were treated as equals and given the resources and education necessary to pursue the careers they wanted. They could choose their partners to a certain extent, and they weren't obligated to have children. For those who did eventually have children, childcare was shared, and you never have to worry about how you're going to feed your kids. Looking at the brochure, it sounded like a pretty good deal. At least, better than it was for most women in 19th century America. But let's look at the fine print before we buy this timeshare. <laughs> because everything was shared, nobody got to own anything. Rooms were identical and sparse, and everyone wore the same thing. Women wore the same weird outfits with bloomers, and they all had identical short haircuts. This was not actually for their comfort, but because Noise was deeply misogynistic and resented women's enjoyment of fashion. He openly admitted that he saw women as weaker than men in all ways, and he dressed them this way because he wanted them to be more like men, or as close to it as they could get. Riddle me this. What kind of guy enjoys attractive women, but resents them for being attractive? This guy was such an incel, he'd have a blue check on Twitter. And besides that, partner selection only went so far. If you wanted to have sex with somebody, you couldn't just hook up in the barn. You had to put through a formal written request for what they called a private interview, which was reviewed by a central administrative board and could be denied. Although you could reject requests for sex from other people, women couldn't reasonably say no to John Humphrey Noyes. Because, of course, this is about him getting laid. But here's the kicker. Even though you could have all the sex you wanted, you weren't allowed to fall in love. Noyes introduced the concept of what he called sticky love, or what we might call romantic love. You know, the kind that you fall into and write poems about. It's a pretty universal experience, but it was forbidden at Oneida. Falling in love was forbidden because being in love with one person would limit the collective sexual access to you if you were turning everybody else down. So to eliminate this kind of love, which is <laughs> frankly impossible, community members watched each other for signs of preference in relationships. And if two people were thought to be in love, they were forbidden from seeing each other. 
obliged to have meaningless, weird sex with dozens of other people, tortured with the knowledge that the person they were in love with was doing the same thing with somebody else. In Oneida, you could have all the sex you want, but not with the one person you wanted the most. Kind of ruins it, huh? The Oneida community didn't believe in romantic love, and they railed against it in the community newspaper. Spontaneous, erotic, exciting love was a moral failing because it prevented you from communing with everybody else equally. And bizarrely, the sex with multiple partners wasn't self-indulgent at all, but a constant exercise in self-restraint. You can have all the sex you want, but you can't really enjoy it. You can't fall in love, you can't orgasm, you have to return to your own room after it's finished, and you can't even finish yourself off. Noise was against masturbation because he believed ejaculation weakened men, draining them of their life force and presumably relaxing them long enough that they realize they're in a fucking cult and they need to leave. It's worth noting that extremes of sexual control are common in cults, and sex itself, or the lack thereof, is often a means of controlling members. I'm not going to name any cults here, but if you look into them at any point, you'll notice a real pattern. On top of all that, at Oneida, you didn't get to choose who was involved in the complex marriage. With more than 300 people at its height, things got complicated, and of course you wouldn't necessarily like everyone you were married to. Charles Guiteau was a member of the community for five years, although he was shunned by most of the women there. This is probably a good thing, as it was later suggested that he suffered from advanced neurosyphilis. They called him Charles Get Out until he did. He eventually left the community and assassinated President Garfield in 1881, for which he was hanged in 1882. But weird partners wasn't all that people had to worry about. Oneida had a strange way of raising children. Children were only allowed to stay with their mothers until they were weaned at a year and a half, after which they were moved to a separate children's house on the property and raised communally. Noise didn't want them around because they were disruptive to his carefully cultivated and rigidly controlled peace. You didn't have any rights over your own children, and you weren't allowed to spend too much time with them or to show them any preference, because doing so would be selfish and against the principles of the community. Parents who were thought to show too much preference for their own children were forbidden from seeing them. It was essentially against the rules to love your kids. It's heartbreaking to think about. But for the first several years, at least, there were very few children born in Oneida. We're going to take a quick break here, then when we come back, we're going to talk about why. With 300 people having sex with each other, some of whom were related in various ways, contraception was crucial. You imagine 300 people banging it out with various partners every few days without any kind of birth control. Within a couple of years, you'd have a few dozen children with no idea who their fathers were and if they were related to each other by blood. That would be confusing as hell, with dire consequences within a single generation if those kids grew up and hooked up with their siblings without realizing it. Not great. So to avoid this, the key to membership in Oneida was the ability to practice what John Humphrey Noyes called male continence. 
Only men who could do this were allowed access to women, and if they could do it perfectly, women theoretically wouldn't have to worry about getting pregnant. So what is male continence? Well, it's a stuffy term for just pulling out. People have been using the pull-out method since the dawn of actual civilization, but 19th century men acted like they invented it. Noyes, in particular, wrote an entire book about it in 1848. I read it, so you don't have to. <laughs> it's a bloated treatise with plenty of biblical references and unsexy descriptions that nevertheless does have some sound feminist principles behind it. Because this podcast focuses first and foremost on the history of sex, I thought it would be fun if we took a closer look together. He begins by explaining that in their first eight years of marriage, he and his wife Harriet had five children, but four were born prematurely, and sadly, only one survived. Experiencing that grief and seeing how difficult it was on his wife physically as well as emotionally, he swore that he would never again put her in that situation. This was probably the best, most genuinely selfless impulse he ever had, and his stance on preventing unwanted pregnancies was soundly feminist. We have to give him credit for that. He wasn't against procreation across the board, but he wanted to free women from the curses of involuntary and undesirable procreation. So far, so sensible. Okay. He continues writing, We are not opposed to the increase of population, but we are opposed to involuntary procreation. We are opposed to excessive and, of course, oppressive procreation, which is almost universal. We are opposed to random procreation, which is unavoidable in the marriage system, but we are in favor of intelligent, well-ordered procreation. Hmm. Well-ordered procreation sounds a bit sus, but we'll come back to that later. Unlike many Christian thinkers, Noyes did not believe that sex should only be for the purposes of procreation. Far from it. Procreation actually grossed him out on a fundamental level, and he blamed pregnancy for desire dying and marriages souring over time. If pregnancy wasn't a threat, spouses could theoretically have amazing, worry-free sex forever. He separated sex into two categories. To Noyes, procreative sex was sometimes sadly necessary, but deeply, deeply gross. Sex for fun, on the other hand, what he called amative intercourse, was a sacrament, and one of the first and most important ways to experience God through connection with another person. It was an act of fellowship, and it shouldn't be shameful or taboo. It should be seen as any other positive physical contact, like a handshake or a pat on the back. The key to experiencing this holy union was to avoid ejaculating. Not for the man to come somewhere else, but for the man to avoid coming at all. He thought ejaculating was draining to a man's life force, an idea that was common in 19th century medicine. They basically thought that ejaculating too much could damage your nervous system or even kill you. According to Noyes, the answer was to enjoy sex for the sake of it without ejaculating, at which point the sex would become propagative and therefore mundane, gross, and injurious to the health of both parties. He even compared thoughtless ejaculation inside a woman to shooting someone in the face, writing, it is better to fire in the air than to kill somebody with it. I mean, he wasn't wrong. Childbirth was dangerous, and risking pregnancy would definitely take the fun out of casual sex. But how could one avoid it? He describes the theory and practice over several pages. I'm going to read you my abridged version here. I will warn you, it might be too sexy to listen to. Proceed with caution. We begin by analyzing the act of sexual intercourse. 
It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Its beginning and most elementary form is the simple presence of the male organ in the female. Then usually follows a series of reciprocal motions. Finally, this exercise brings on a nervous action or ejaculatory crisis, which expels the seed. Now we insist that this whole process, up to the very moment of emission, is voluntary, entirely under the control of the moral faculty, and can be stopped at any point. In other words, the presence and motions can be continued or stopped at will, and it is only the final crisis of emission that is automatic or uncontrollable. Suppose, then, that a man, in lawful intercourse with a woman, choosing for good reason not to beget a child or disable himself, should stop at the primary stage and content himself with simple presence continued as long as agreeable. Would there be any harm? I appeal to the memory of every man who has had good sexual experience to say whether, on the whole, the sweetest and noblest period of intercourse with a woman is not that first moment of simple presence and spiritual effusion, before the muscular exercise begins— but we may go farther. Suppose a man chooses for good reason, as before, to enjoy not only the simple presence, but also the reciprocal motion, and yet to stop short of the crisis. What if a man, knowing his own power and limits, should not even approach the crisis, and yet be able to enjoy the presence and the motion? If you say that it is impossible, I answer that I know it is possible, nay, that it is easy. I will admit, however, that it may be impossible to some while it is possible to others. Men of certain temperaments and conditions are afflicted with involuntary emissions on very trivial excitement and in their sleep, but I insist that these are exceptional, morbid cases that should be disciplined and improved. In the normal condition, men are entirely competent to choose in sexual intercourse whether they will stop at any point at the voluntary stages of it and so make it simply an act of communion, or go through the involuntary stage and make it an act of propagation. The situation may be compared to a stream in the three conditions of a fall, a course of rapids above the fall, and still water above the rapids. The skillful boatman may choose whether he will remain in the still water, venture more or less down the rapids, or run his boat over the fall. But there is a point on the verge of the fall where he has no control over his course, and just above that there is a point where he will still have to struggle with the current in a way which will give his nerves a severe trial, even though he may escape the fall. If he is willing to learn, experience will teach him the wisdom of confining his excursions to the region of easy rowing, unless he has an object in view that is worth the cost of going over the falls. Sexy, sexy stuff. For those of you who zoned out there, he's endorsing both edging and soaking. So if you thought that the latter was just for weird religious folks nowadays, just know that weird religious folks were doing it in the 1840s too. The practice of male continence was so central to the Oneida community that it was required of the men for membership. Men who could not contain themselves were denied sexual access to women until they mastered self-control. Incredibly enough, it worked. Pulling out is notorious for failing and very difficult to practice perfectly, but somehow Oneida managed it. Over 30 years, they had very few pregnancies, and most of them were planned. One study looking at Oneida's efforts at population control explains... Very few children were born. Most fathers had just one child. Only a few mothers had more than one. Therefore, fertility was extremely low. A group of young women had, altogether, only 15 pregnancies during 327 woman years of exposure. Older women, after joining the community, had only two pregnancies in 105 fertile years. Now that is surprisingly effective. The system worked. This is where the story takes a darker turn. 
The Oneida community functioned in this way for 30 years. Over time, younger people would join and children would grow up, and at a certain point, they were all initiated into the sexual practices of the community. Younger men were allowed to practice male continence with menopausal women, many of whom they had grown up with as surrogate mothers, to reduce the risk of accidental pregnancy. Girls, on the other hand, were always personally trained by John Humphrey Noyes, who would serve as their first partner once they hit puberty, with an average age of only 13. He would also eventually share them with other older men in the community who pleased him. If there was any question in your mind about whether this guy was really a predator or just misunderstood, I hope that this clears that up for you. I don't want to dwell on that for too long. So back to the well-ordered procreation that I mentioned before. Over time, Noyes became fascinated with eugenics, because of course he did. 19th century history is like six degrees of Kevin Bacon with eugenics. Basically, anything can be connected to eugenics in six degrees or less. But in Oneida, that connection was a bit more direct. Although he was theoretically opposed to what he called propagative sex, Noyes eventually decided the community was ready to have limited children. Like everything, there was an administrative process. If you wanted to have a child, you had to submit a request, which was approved or denied with Noyes having the last word. The only trouble is... You didn't get to choose who you had that child with. Noise would decide who was allowed to have children with whom, and in a few cases where he was concerned people might be in love or embroiled in sticky love, he would split them up and compel them to have children with other people just to fuck with them. He called his eugenics project Sturpiculture, and unsurprisingly, many of the children born under his eugenics experiment were his or his family's. 10 out of 62 were fathered by Noyes personally, and another 19 were closely related to him. Around this time, Noyes started claiming that he had a direct psychic link with the Apostle Paul. He became fascinated with incest and theorized that having children with his own blood relatives would strengthen his genes to the point that his offspring would become immortal. He considered having children with his nieces and even his own daughter. He proposed this idea to one of his nieces, Terza Miller, who already had one child with her other uncle, Noyes' younger brother, George. Noyes wrote to Terza and told her that it was his duty to have a child with her, and that doing so would intensify the Noyes' blood more than anything else. Aside from the obvious gross factor here, it is wild to me that this guy was so obsessed with eugenics to the point that he planned to produce his own race of immortal children, but didn't read deep enough into it to find out what happens when you have children with your own family members. Ask the Spanish Habsburg dynasty how that worked out for them. Anyway, his relationship with Terza gets worse when you realize that after her father had died when she was a baby, Noyes had taken over as her father figure and then began having sex with her when she was only 14. Terza had grown up in the community, and she had never known anything outside of it. She was devoted to Noyes. He was the only father she had ever known, and she didn't know another way of living. She was isolated from the outside world, and Noyes told her that she was crucial to Oneida. He promised her that she would be able to pick her own sexual partners, but he always had the last word. She was too beautiful, young, and politically useful. Noyes used sexual access to his niece as an incentive to get what he wanted out of other men. In 1873, he ordered Terza to have a baby with Edward Inslee, a talented mechanic who was considering leaving the community. Terza barely knew him, but she agreed to please her uncle. 
Terza quickly got pregnant, but her new relationship with Edward threw noise into a jealous rage, even though it was his idea to begin with. He forbade them from seeing each other. He encouraged Edward to sleep with other women, then gleefully told Terza about it to hurt her. After the baby was born, Noyes severely limited Edward's access to his own son until Edward, disgusted, finally left the community once and for all in 1875. It broke Terza's heart. She had fallen in love with Edward in the end, but she didn't feel like she could leave. She believed in the community, and her uncle needed her. Terza focused on community activity, hoping to distract herself from her broken heart, but Noyes doubled down. He changed the name of her baby from Hayden, after the composer, to Paul, his favorite apostle, and he insisted Terza stop seeing her own child, as if that would help her to forget the whole experience. Terza had never got over the loss of Edward, and she had dreams about him for years after he left. Edward kept writing to Noise, hoping for news of Terza and his son, but his letters went unanswered. Terza eventually married another community member with Noise's approval, although she never forgot Edward. She wrote of Edward in her diary, I had hoped, hoped that sometime I might once more be folded in those strong, tender arms which I remember so well. Through his jealousy, Noyes had destroyed his niece's chance at happiness with a man who truly loved her. But Terza's relationship wasn't the only one that he destroyed. Ellen Whalen Smith's book is full of the most heartbreaking stories of people joining the community for connection but finding only loss and heartbreak as John Humphrey Noyes micromanaged their relationships to suit his own ego. Some escaped the community, but others struggled to leave. It had been going for 30 years, and many people within it had never known anything else. Oneida was prosperous, all their needs were met, and they typically only worked six hours a day, while life outside was unfamiliar and harsh, with people working much longer hours and still struggling to make ends meet. Still, Noise's Bible secrecy couldn't hold forever. On June 21, 1879, the Syracuse Standard published an article that would bring his world crashing down around him. It warned of his imminent arrest, stating that authorities were recording testimony as to the group's unorthodox sexual practices. Noise was in trouble, so he did what he had always done when things didn't go his way. He ran. The next morning, Noise fled to Canada before dawn never to see Oneida again. Without Noyes' strict control over their sex lives, the community fell apart. His son took over administration, but the community couldn't decide how it wanted to move forward without Noyes. Complex marriage was the first thing to go. It officially ended on August 28, 1879. The younger generation wanted monogamy, not necessarily because they only wanted one partner, but because they wanted the security that traditional marriage would provide. If the community disbanded, the women would be left alone without providers, unable to work the way they were used to, and mothers to children who were bastards in the eyes of society. They might not have believed in marriage, but it was still their best chance at survival in the late 19th century. John Humphrey Noyes lived in Niagara Falls until his death in 1886. History has been a bit too gentle with him, in my opinion. On one hand, yes, he did create a surprisingly progressive community and had some good ideas about birth control, but on the other hand, he completely missed the point of God is love. By prioritizing weird, obligatory sex over romantic love and micromanaging the relationships of his followers, he took one of the best things life has to offer and corrupted it beyond recognition. He sexually abused countless women and girls, including his own niece, and he set up an entire generation of children for abandonment issues and unfathomable trauma. Just because he was into birth control does not give this guy a pass on being an absolute monster. 
How much did he believe his own theology? We'll never know. But as Wayland Smith summarizes beautifully, from his youth, Noyes had displayed an uncanny ability to devise complex theological and social systems that he claimed were grounded in divine inspiration, but that were also remarkably effective at meeting his particular psychosexual needs. Convenient, isn't it? His utopian community ultimately disbanded. It lasted from 1848 until 1879, a full 30 years and not much longer. The complex marriage was over, but their businesses were still successful. Before long, they shifted their focus to industry, and under the new management of the descendants of the community, Oneida Flatware became wildly successful, persevering through the generations until I found myself looking at the stamp on the back of a spoon back in 1997. What a story. My main source for this episode was the book Oneida, From Free Love Utopia to the Well-Set Table by Ellen Wayland Smith. I cannot say enough good things about this book. It was one of the most engaging, thought-provoking, and at times horrifying narrative history books I have ever read. It is beautifully written and thoroughly researched, and I would recommend it to anyone. I actually sent a copy of this to my mother-in-law. Uh, she is very interested in the history of theology, so I sent it to her after finishing chapter two, and then I called her and apologized once I got to the eugenics stuff. Uh, but if you enjoyed this episode, I do hope that you pick up a copy of this fantastic book. I also used the following sources. Lawrence Foster, Free Love and Feminism, John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida Community, in Journal of the Early Republic. Antonio Gallini, how Low Can Fertility Be? An Empirical Exploration in Population and Development Review. Terza Miller, Desire and Duty at Oneida, Terza Miller's Intimate Memoir. Edited by Robert S. Fogarty. John Humphrey Noyes, Male Continents, Together with an Essay on Scientific Propagation, Dixon and His Copyists, Salvation from Sin, 1848. Spencer C. Olin, Jr., The Oneida Community and the Instability of Charismatic Authority, in the Journal of American History. B. Wiley, Reproductive Biology in the United Community, 1848 to 1880, in the Bulletin of the Cleveland Medical Library. As always, this show is brought to you in part by our superstar patrons on Patreon. Special thanks to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. Guys, I cannot emphasize how much our patrons help us out. And this month, they have actually bought us a new microphone. So if you notice that I sound a little bit different and you enjoy it, well, we have the patrons to thank. So thank you all so very much for supporting the show and making it a little bit better for everybody. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, and Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History, or check out the website at dirtysexyhistory.com. We will be off next week for the holidays, but we'll be back on January 3rd with a new guest I can't wait for you to meet. Happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe, and we'll see you in the new year. <laughs>